All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Uh, perhaps you're here because someone invited you, or maybe you came with a family member, or maybe you're just driving by and wanted to stop in. We're glad that you're here. Uh, you should know that our normal pattern at this church is to take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse. That's what we're doing. We're in the book of Acts. We've actually officially reached the halfway point today. We are in Acts chapter 15. So that's exciting. I, I heard a woohoo over here. That's good. I'm glad that, I don't know if that's good that you're excited it's almost over or that you're just glad we're in the middle of it. But either way, I like woohoos, so that's good. So Acts 15 is where we are this morning. The reason why we take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse is because we really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda, not me. The last thing you need is me or someone else in the pulpit setting the agenda. We want the Word of God to do the work. And so that's why we do what we do. Uh, to that end, let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we do pray this morning that you would speak mightily through your word. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would speak. We know that there is a lot going on in the world around us. We know that there's a lot going on in people's lives in this room. There are some who walk through these doors this morning carrying unimaginable baggage. But Lord, we pray this morning you would encourage us in our weariness. Oh Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in our exhaustion. We pray that you would minister to us in the midst of the busyness of our lives. Oh, we pray that as we open up your word, your spirit would do a great and mighty work. We're pausing here because we know that for this to happen, it will be your work. It will not be anything that I'm doing. It will not be anything that we're doing. It will be a result of your grace. And so God, we pray that you would be merciful to us this morning and that you would speak powerfully through your word. Oh, Lord, please, please speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So in November of 1943, the world was still teetering on the brink of utter disaster. Although Hitler's forces had suffered significant losses in the year prior, the German madman was still on the rampage, and the possibility of Hitler and his allies winning World War II was a very real prospect. Given those circumstances, it would be hard to overstate the importance of a meeting that took place from November 28th to December 1st of 1943. On those dates, the big three Allied leaders, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union, Franklin Roosevelt of the United States, and Winston Churchill of the United Kingdom, gathered together in Tehran, Iran, to coordinate military strategy and to make a number of important decisions regarding the future of a post-war world. It was the first time the big three had ever gathered together in person, and in fact, it was alleged to be the first time that Stalin had left the Soviet Union since 1917. And although each of the three leaders came to the meeting with different objectives, and probably none of them left completely satisfied, that meeting, which in the years to follow would come to be known as the Tehran Conference, was a hugely significant gathering. Within 18 months, Hitler would be dead, and Germany would have surrendered. And at least in part, those outcomes can be traced back to military decisions made at the Tehran Conference. It's no wonder, then, that some military historians have labeled the Tehran Conference one of the most important diplomatic meetings to ever take place in the history of the world. Without that meeting, it's hard to tell what the world might look like today. All that to say, the Tehran Conference was an extraordinarily important meeting. But as important as that meeting was, I would contend that the meeting we are about to read about today, in Acts chapter 15, was far more consequential than even the Tehran Conference of November 1943. Because while the Tehran Conference may have dealt with decisions that altered the history of the course of the world, the meeting that takes place in Jerusalem in Acts 15 not only dealt with decisions that would also alter the history of the world, in this case, the history of the church, more importantly, the decisions made in Acts 15 had eternal implications. 
In Acts 15, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Jerusalem Council, which is the name of the meeting that we're reading about in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council would make decisions that would determine what it is that salvation or how it is that salvation comes about. The decisions they would make were about the important question of how are we right with God? How can a person actually be saved? Given that reality, I think it's fair to say that the meeting that takes place in Acts 15 is not only one of the most important meetings of the book of Acts, it is indeed one of the most important meetings in the history of the world. Some meetings change the course of history, like the Tehran Conference, but the meeting that takes place in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, echoes into eternity. As such, I would say it's worthy of our attention this morning. So having said that, let's get to it. And I think the best way we can get to it is to walk through each of the sections of the passage and then come back and try to make sense of it. And it seems to me that in our passage today, there are three distinct sections. There's the setup or the problem that arises in verses 1 to 5, the meeting itself in verses 6 to 21, and then finally the resulting action from the meeting in verses 22 to 35. So let's start by looking at the setup or the problem that arises in verses 1 to 5. Now actually, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of this portion of Scripture. We're going to be reading a lot different sections today. I won't ask you to rise and stand every time. We're not doing calisthenics today. But I'm going to ask you to stand for this section as a simple way of reminding ourselves this is the Word of God. Now when we read future sections, I would encourage you to keep that in mind even though we won't be standing. But standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the Word of God. It's due our attention. So verses 1 to 5 of Acts chapter 15, the word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You may be seated. So in the beginning verses of this passage, the nature of the problem starts to come into focus. As verse 1 informs us, some were coming from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching that the Gentile brothers must be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, as you may know, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant relationship with the people of God. Male Israelites then would be circumcised in order to demonstrate their faithfulness to the covenant. And so the fundamental issue being raised in verse 1 is this. Must a Gentile, in this case we're meaning a non-Jewish person, must a Gentile be circumcised in order to be saved? Or to ask it another way, is faith in Jesus enough or must one be circumcised too? Now as verse 2 makes clear, this particular question occasioned no small debate. So the church in Antioch decides to send a delegation to Jerusalem to seek the input of the apostles and elders on this crucial question. What does it mean to be saved? Now the journey from Antioch to Jerusalem was about 250 miles and likely would have taken several weeks. And so as the delegation proceeds, the delegation included Paul and Barnabas, they testify to the work that God has been doing. And God is clearly blessing their work. And that's what we see in verse 3. When the delegation arrives in Jerusalem, verse 4, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and the delegation continues to proclaim all that God has been doing. But then in verse 5, the issue or the problem at hand which occasioned them to go to Jerusalem once again comes to the forefront. And the issue becomes even clearer, or the problem becomes even clearer in verse 5. Look at what we read in verse 5 here. 
Again, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So it becomes clear to us in verse 5, the question is not just must they be circumcised in order to be saved. The question is, must a Gentile person obey the law? Must they become Jewish in order to be a genuine Christian? Must they follow all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to actually have peace with God? Now, lest you think this is just an academic question or a Bible nerd question that has no relevance for your life, you need to understand something this morning. The question being debated in Acts 15 has implications for every last person in this room. Is faith in Jesus enough? Or do you have to obey the law, the Mosaic law, the law given by Moses? Do you have to obey the law in order to be saved? So again, the question here is not just related to circumcision. It's a broader question, a broader question about obeying the law. Do you need to abstain from eating pork in order to be right with God? Do you need to follow all the laws about cleanliness in the Old Testament to have peace with God? Do you need to wear clothes of a certain kind in order to be considered righteous before the Lord? So again, you might be tempted to read the first five verses of Acts 15 and think, well, this is history, it's kind of boring, it doesn't really relate to me at all. But hear this, the issue at hand in Acts 15 has implications for every last one of us. What does it mean to be saved? How can you be saved? How can you be right with God? Those are not inconsequential questions. Those are questions that echo into eternity and affect every last person on the face of this planet, including every person in this room. As such, those are questions that demand an answer. How can you be saved? And those are the questions that the Jerusalem Council attempts to answer in their meeting that takes place in verses 6 to 21. And that brings us to the second portion of the passage, which is the meeting itself. We read about the meeting itself in verses 6 to 21. Verse 6 says this, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So there are two main people who speak at the Jerusalem Council. There's Peter in verses 7 to 11, and then James in verses 13 to 21. Now, Paul and Barnabas play a small role in verse 12. The apostles and other elders are mentioned briefly in verse 6. But it's Peter and James that do the majority of the speaking in the Jerusalem Council, at least as is recorded to us here. In verse 7, Peter addresses the crowd, and he alludes to the events of Acts 10 in which the Gentile Christian Cornelius first heard the good news about Jesus. 
That event probably took place about 10 years prior to what we're reading about here in Acts 15. And Peter's recalling that event to make a larger point. The point being this. If God gave the Gentile believers the Holy Spirit, just like he gave the Jewish believers the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and if God cleansed the hearts of Gentiles by faith in the same way that he cleansed the hearts of Jewish believers, then who are they to stand in God's way? Who are they to demand that Gentiles keep the Mosaic law if God has already given Gentile believers the Holy Spirit? Who are they to demand circumcision if God has already cleansed their hearts by faith? And furthermore, who are they to put the yoke of obedience to the law on the Gentile believers if they themselves as Jewish believers can't keep the law either? Or to say it in summary form, if God has already made his decision about the Gentiles and he's given them his Holy Spirit and cleansed their hearts apart from circumcision and obedience to the law, why would the council go in the opposite direction? God has chosen to rescue the Gentiles because of his grace. That's Peter's summary. Not because of their obedience to the law. But the truth is, that's how Jewish believers are saved too. And that's actually the point that Peter concludes with in verse 11. Again, listen to what he says in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jews and Gentiles alike. Or to say another way. Every person on the face of the planet who trusts in Jesus Christ is saved not by obedience to a law, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ. They're saved by grace. And that's the last thing that Peter says or does in the book of Acts. If ever there was a mic drop moment, this is it. Jews and Gentiles both saved by grace. Peter's out. And after that mic drop moment, the crowd falls Silence. Paul and Barnabas testify the work that they've seen God doing, and then James enters the discussion. James was a half-brother of Jesus, and because of his character and courage, he rose to prominence as the key leader in the church at Jerusalem. And in verses 13 to 21, he issues the definitive statement that would shape the future direction of the church. In verse 14, he alludes to Simeon's, that's Peter, Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, Peter's testimony about God's outreach to the Gentiles. And then in verses 15 to 17, he makes a crucial argument. He contends that Peter's testimony is entirely consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. And to make that point, he quotes from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, with the main point of that quotation being that God had already and always had a plan to reach the Gentiles. And thus, given that plan that's seen through the prophets, not just Amos, Amos is just an example, but all of the prophets, and given the fact that God has poured out his spirit on the Gentiles, and given the fact that God has already cleansed them by faith, there's no need to add any further obligation to the Gentiles. They do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. They do not have to obey the Mosaic law, Mosaic law in order to be right with God. They do not need to become Jewish in order to have peace with God. Faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient which is the point that James is driving home in verse 19 when he says that the church should not trouble Gentiles who turn to God. Now after that, James says some kind of strange stuff. Because he values the unity of the church, he talks about avoiding certain things. Now let me be clear from the start here. What he adds in verse 20 is not a repudiation of what he said in verse 19. He clearly believes Gentiles are saved only by grace. He's not adding something. He's not saying they're saved by grace, but they need to do this. No, what he's doing, because he values the unity of the church, 
Even though the Gentiles are free from the burden of the law, he encourages Gentile believers to live in such a way so as to not bring offense to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. More precisely, in verse 20, he encourages the Gentile believers to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from that which has been strangled, and from blood. Over the years, there have been all kinds of debate as to what James is talking about here. But as a broad statement, I think what we can conclude is this. James is encouraging the Gentile believers to avoid anything that could be associated with idolatry or worship of false gods. All four of the things that he mentions here were commonly a part of idol worship. And so James is saying, don't do anything that could be associated with idolatry. Also, what he's saying, I think, is this. He's saying, be careful to not give unnecessary offense to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. For the Jewish person, food regulations were a huge part of daily living. And given the context, it would appear that many Jewish Christians still adhered to those food regulations. And so James' point seems to be this. Gentiles are not obligated to obey the law. Let's be clear on that. They're not obligated to obey the law. They're saved by grace. But because they're saved, they should want to take into account their Jewish brothers and sisters and live in such a way so as not to cause disunity or factions. So the main point of James' declaration in verses 19 to 21 is this. Gentiles do not have to obey the law in order to be saved. But because the Mosaic law was still a part of Jewish believers' lives, that's what he means when he talks about Moses being read in the synagogue still, these Gentile believers should seek to live in a way that brings glory to God and gives no offense to their Jewish brothers and sisters. In particular, he encouraged them, avoid association with idol worship. So that's the stance that James takes. And then he encourages the rest of the council to take the same stance, which is exactly what they do. And that brings us to the final section, which is the resulting action from the council. Verses 22 to 35. Verse 22 says this. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, that has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So it's clear here from what follows in verses 22 to 35 that the rest of the apostles and elders agreed with James' proposal. So they select some men to return to Antioch to deliver news of the council's decision. Actually, more precisely, they're delivering a letter. And the content of that letter is found in verses 23 to 29. According to these verses, the content of the letter laid out the credentials of those who were coming with the letter, and then the letter spelled out the council's decision, which essentially was the same decision that James has already proclaimed in verses 19 to 20. Now, when the church in Antioch receives this news, they rejoice because of the encouragement, presumably because it also gave them clarity. And then in verses 33 to 35, we see the word of God continuing to advance and the kingdom of God continuing to march on. And that's how the passage ends. 
You could make the argument that Acts 15 is not only the central chapter in the book of Acts in terms of location, but also the central chapter in terms of theology. The decisions made in Acts 15 will continue to reverberate throughout the rest of the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. More than that, the decisions that they made at this council continue to reverberate today. Our understanding of salvation and what's necessary for salvation are in large part predicated on what happens here in Acts 15. Now to be sure, let me clarify something here. We're not arguing that the early church decided what was necessary for salvation. Rather, what we're saying is the early church discerned what God had already deemed necessary for salvation. There's a huge difference between those two statements. James and Peter and the council did not determine, we think this is what's necessary for salvation. Rather, they simply discerned through the scriptures and through the spirit what God had already decided was necessary for salvation. All that to say, I'm thoroughly convinced that the meeting in Acts 15 is indeed one of the most important meetings in history because it clarifies how does one become right with God. Now the question for us this morning is, what do we do with this? Right? It's nice to know that the Jerusalem Council made the decision they did, but what difference does it make for us? After all, this was 2,000 years ago. How is this relevant? When most of us think about history, we have a hard time understanding how it applies currently. For example, having learned a little bit this morning about the Tehran Conference, I think most of us would probably agree the conference was historically significant. But will any of you wake up tomorrow morning thinking, you know, that conference with Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill has really got me thinking about my life today. The military strategy they employed in November 1943 has really caused me to think, what direction am I headed in? I need to think about that conference more. No, none of you are going to do that tomorrow morning because if you did, that would just be weird. I've never once considered the Tehran Conference in any of my life's decisions, nor will I ever do so. Perhaps there are lessons that could be learned from that conference, but I don't know what they are, and honestly, I don't really care. But the Jerusalem Council, on the other hand, is a completely different story, and here's why. Not only is it recorded in the Word of God, which is living and active, breathed out by God, useful for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. On top of that, the principles being dealt with in Acts 15 are principles that have eternal weight. And because of that, there's a relevance to what we read here in Acts 15 that cannot and must not be neglected. So here's what I want to do in the rest of our time together this morning. I'm going to argue that there are some underlying principles here. In fact, three underlying principles found in Acts 15 that are relevant for our daily living. And then I'm going to argue that there is one overarching principle from this passage that we cannot miss. So let's start with the underlying principles that we see in the way that they come about their decision. So underlying principle number one is this. Truth exists and it matters. Now here's where we have to be culturally honest. We live in a day and age in which truth is viewed to be a very fluid concept. Not only does our culture regularly deny the existence of absolute truth, meaning truth that's true in all circumstances, but for most people in our culture, truth is not as important as what they want to be true. If you don't believe me, just hop on social media sometime. The discussions and arguments that take place on social media often have little to do with what's actually true and everything to do with what people want to be true. People don't care what your intellectual arguments are. Again, if you don't believe me, just hop on there and try to make an intellectual argument sometime. They don't care, because they don't really care what's true. They just want you to agree with them. And without question, that mindset spills over into the church, too. 
Many in the church have adopted the mindset the truth is not as important as what we want to be true or what we feel should be true. Let me give you an example. I saw a video this week of a lady praying in a church service in which she prayed, and I'm just going to quote here. She prayed, quote, God of pronouns, who said you can call me he, she, they, whatever makes you feel closest to me. That's how she addressed God. The same lady concluded her prayer by saying, we give you thanks and praise, the great I am or the great they, them. Now, obviously, this lady had an agenda in her prayer, and it wouldn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out what that agenda was. But here's the thing. Aside from her agenda being completely unbiblical, the bigger problem is this. She just flat out lies about what God has said in his word. At no point in scripture does God say anything even remotely close to, you can call me he or she or they or whatever makes you feel closest to me. On the contrary, we come to God on his terms. We don't dictate the terms to him. Nor does God ever refer to himself as the great they, them. He is the great I am, period. And to suggest otherwise is simply to deny what the Bible teaches and to blaspheme God. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to poke fun at this particular lady or needlessly mock her prayer. Now, her prayer does elicit some anger in me because it's a flat-out denial of God's revelation that we see in Scripture. But I feel compassion for her because I think she's lost and hurting and looking for comfort in a God of her own making that doesn't exist. But the reason I bring up the prayer is not to mock, but rather to make a point. The point is simply this. Even in the church, people often don't care about what's actually true. They just care about what they want to be true or what they think should be true. And here's the thing, we can easily fall into that temptation too. I've heard many people that I know say things like this, I don't believe in a God who could send people to hell. Or I don't believe God would would give us commands in which he would want us to limit our pursuit of pleasure. Or given the evil in the world, I don't believe that God is really sovereign. Or I don't believe that Jesus is the only way because there are lots of good people from other religions too. Or my sin's not really that big a deal. I mean, yeah, sure, I gossip, and maybe I get angry every once in a while, but I'm way better than other people. But here's the problem. God is who he is and not who we think he should be. The Bible is clear. Those who do not know Christ will spend eternity in hell. The Bible is also clear. God gives us commands that he expects us to obey, and yes, they may limit our freedom in one sense, but they give us so much more joy. The Bible also teaches that despite the brokenness of the world, God is sovereign, and John 14, 6 could not be clear. Jesus is the way. The truth, the life, there is no way to the Father except through him. Furthermore, all sin is a big deal because all sin is an offense against the holy God. Now, whether you like those things or not is irrelevant to their truthfulness. I don't like, for example, that my son is sick. That doesn't change the fact that he's sick. I don't like the fact that I'm getting older and more brittle every year. But the truth is, I'm getting older and more brittle every year. I don't like the fact that gas almost costs $4 a gallon but it is what it is. What we want to be true, and what's actually true sometimes may be two different things, but what's true is true. Furthermore, you can't just say, well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. That's another tactic of the modern age, that we each get to determine our own truth. But that's not how truth works either, is it? You may say, I don't think there's a God. And I may say, there is a God. But at the end of the day, only one of us is right. Both statements cannot be true at the same time. There is such a thing as absolute truth, and our goal is to find it. Now, that brings us back to the passage. In Acts 15, the question arises, how does one actually get saved? Are they saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, or are they saved by faith in Jesus plus adherence to the law? 
Now notice, the apostles do not punt on that question. They don't say to the Gentiles, Gentiles, you believe what you want to believe. Jewish people, you believe what you want to believe. It's fine. Nor do the apostles ask the question, well, what do you guys want to be true? Instead, they simply try to figure out what is actually true. And rest assured, in making that determination, they probably offended some people. In the Acts 15 scenario, some people had to be told at the end of the day, you're wrong. And no doubt, that caused offense. But hear this, truth is not a popularity contest, nor is it something that is designed to make you feel good. The question is not, what do you want to be true? Or what does everyone else think is true? Or what do you think should be true? The question is, what is actually true? And the Jerusalem Council reminds us of that. It probably would have been easier for the council to say, everyone should get circumcised, everyone obey the law. That would have been cleaner and easier. But the apostles weren't interested in what was cleaner or easier. They were interested in what's actually true. In this case, they wanted to know the answer to the question, how does one actually get saved? Now, how did they determine what was true? How do we find out what is truth? That's the second underlying principle of the passage, and that's this. To know what's true, we must lean on Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, without a doubt, the question the apostles and elders face in in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council is not an easy one. And given their Jewish background, they were probably somewhat sympathetic to the argument coming from the Jewish camp. So how did they decide what was right? How did they decide what was true? They did so by turning to Scripture and by relying on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which go hand in hand. In fact, look back at verses 13 to 18 here. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos. You notice what he did there? He made the connection. He's trying to figure out what's true. And he says, what Peter just said lines up with what Scripture teaches. So how did he decide what's true? By looking to Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit is involved in this process too, which is what's alluded to in verse 28. This is how they write to the church in Antioch, and they say this, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So when it came time to make tough decisions, the apostles didn't just throw darts at a board, or they didn't go with their gut. They looked to Scripture, and they looked to be led by the Holy Spirit, which again go hand in hand. And in that is a model for us. How do we know what's true? Well, we rely on what the Word of God teaches and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The reason why we preach the Bible at this church and why we preach through it verse by verse is we really do believe this book is God's Word. As such, it's the place we go to to find truth. Listen, every person and their brother in our culture has an opinion on what's true. But if God is the creator of the universe... And he made all things, and he knows best how the world works. It seems to me that we should want to know what he thinks is true. If your way of deciding how things are true revolves around how you feel, or what seems right to you, or what you heard someone say on social media, you are looking for truth in the wrong places. For the Christian, we decide what is true based upon the clear teaching of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which again go hand in hand. Now, to be sure, some will distort the scriptures and try to make them say things they don't actually say. That, too, is an old tactic of Satan. It goes all the way back to the garden when he asked the question, did God really say this? So our job is to figure out what does this book actually teach, and then with all of our heart and all of who we are, we must cling to it. 
That's what the Jerusalem council did. That's how they determined what was truth, by looking to Scripture and by relying on the Holy Spirit. That's how we should operate too. But there's a third underlying principle in this passage, and that's this. The truth matters, but unity is important too. Now, it's important for us to note, the early church was committed to truth. That's why they're taking the time to answer the question, how is one saved? It's also important for us to note how they determined what was true, looking to Scripture, relying on the Holy Spirit. But we shouldn't overlook the fact that the early church also prioritized unity. James's solution that he put forward in verses 19 to 20 was not one of scorched earth truth. Rather, it's a solution that acknowledged what was true, but also strove for unity too. James's conclusion was Gentiles don't have to follow the law to be saved. That's the truth element. But they should live in such a way so as not to cause offense to their brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, strive for unity. And in that, I think there's a warning for us. There's a ditch on both sides. Well, some in the church are dangerously allergic to truth for whatever reason. Others in the church are so eager to drop truth bombs that they don't care what catastrophic damage it causes. But I don't think that's the way either. In the book of Acts, the church prioritized truth, but they also sought after unity. In fact, in the book of Acts, there's regular conflict. As verse 2 would indicate in this passage, sometimes that conflict was serious. And yet the church would strive for truth, but they would also strive to be unified in pursuing that truth together. Because they believed that unity draw, drew attention to the power of God. And what's interesting, in the book of Acts, as they deal with conflict, and as they strive for unity while still holding to truth, it's often that after there's conflict, and that conflict is resolved, that the church grows and spreads. We see a hint of that here in Acts 15. The church has a serious conflict, but after they work through it, at the end of the passage, the gospel is advancing. Hear this, unity in the church matters. Now, we should never strive for unity at the expense of truth. But we should also not ignore the importance of unity as if being right is the only thing that matters. We should hold tightly to the essentials. Jesus is the only way. Salvation is found in Christ alone. There's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God and so on. But on non-essentials, we should be charitable and strive for unity. Or as John Newton once said it, we should be an iron pillar in essentials and a reed in non-essentials. That's what we see here in Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council was crystal clear on the essentials. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. But on issues of liberty, in this case related to food, they should strive for unity. And that actually brings us to the overarching principle of the passage, the one thing we can't miss. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, not by works. But how we live still matters. Listen, I think there's a lot we can learn from the decision-making process of the church, the Jerusalem Council, and those underlying principles we've already talked about. But at the end of the day, the greatest value of this passage is related to the question they were debating. And that question is simply this, how does a person get saved? How are they right with God? How can they have peace with a holy God when they are a sinner? Is circumcision necessary for salvation? Is obeying the law necessary? Or is faith in Christ enough? Peter's answer to that question is crystal clear. Look one more time at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10. This is Peter talking. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Listen, there is no one in this room who can bear the yoke of salvation by works because none of us are perfect. None of us can fully satisfy the righteous demands of the law. 
Every person in this room is guilty because of sin. When I say every person, I mean every person. Our only hope is that Jesus did the work for us. He perfectly satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. He took the yoke that we could not bear. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. And if we come to him in saving faith, we can be rescued. Not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious. We're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not by our works. There's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. It's only what Christ has done. And can I tell you, that is a giant relief. I don't have to do anything to earn God's approval. I already have it because of what Jesus did. That's amazing. And that is a huge blessing. But that doesn't mean that how we live is unimportant. In fact, look one more time at James' instructions in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what's been strangled and from blood. Now, my question for you in relation to what James says is this. If we're saved by grace, and James doesn't want to add any burden to the Gentiles, then why does he tell them to avoid sexual morality and be careful with what they eat? Well, it's because of what we talked about earlier. Truth matters, they're saved by grace, but loving others matters too. In this case, James was not adding a burden saying you have to do this in order to be saved. Instead, he was saying because you are saved, because you've been saved by grace, you should consider your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. He was encouraging them, don't live in such a way so as to cause them to stumble or needlessly offend them. Rather, consider others in the way that you live. Now, having said that, here's where we need to be honest. Avoiding meat that has been strangled or has blood in it is not a big concern in our culture. So James' concern probably seems a bit irrelevant. But blood and strangulation are not the point of James' encouragement. The point is, consider others in the way that you live and live in a way consistent with your salvation. Or as Bible commentator David Peterson put it, the deeper significance of James' instructions about food and sexual morality is an implied challenge to break completely with any pagan association and practice. And to do all things, even eating and drinking, to the glory of God, causing no one to stumble. To that point, I would just say this. If you read Acts 15 and think, I'm saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter how I live, I would just say, I don't think you've read quite closely enough. Yes, we're saved by grace alone. And that is awesome news. Again, there's nothing you can do to earn God's salvation. But how we matter still live. Because we want to live in a way that brings glory to God, and we want to live in a way that helps others to see the beauty of the gospel too. Now, what that means in practice is a little bit trickier to figure out. For us, it probably doesn't have much to do with strangled meat. But it does mean that we're living in a way that considers others and seeks to bring glory to God. Or to say it another way, we live in light of the grace that we've received, and we want to live in a way that helps others to see that grace too. And more than anything, I think that's the point of the Jerusalem Council. The meeting in Jerusalem may have changed the course of history. It may have helped us to see the importance of truth and unity and even helped us to discern how do we know what's true. But more than anything, I, hope the Jerusalem, I think the Jerusalem Council helps us to see salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not by works. But because we're saved by grace, how we live still matters. Because we've been saved by grace, we will want to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. So yes, Saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, period. But in light of our salvation, let's live in a way that brings honor to him and seeks to love others too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. We know there's some kind of strange stuff in it. 
about circumcision and strangled meat. But at the end of the day, we know it's a passage that reminds us we are saved by grace alone. Oh, that is good news. For every person who walked through these doors this morning, no matter what baggage they have, what decisions they made, what sins they've committed, if only they will trust in you, they can be rescued. For those of us who have done that, there is great relief in this. We do not have to continually earn your approval. We already have it because of Jesus. But in light of the grace that we receive, we pray that we would live differently. We live for your glory, and we would live in a way that loves others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.